psalms. And we look tonight in Psalm 18, where we find the theme for this evening, the Lord our refuge. David says, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. There are two Hebrew words that are used in verse 2 that are similar and communicate basically the same truth that we're examining tonight. The one word is the word fortress. It is a word that is used five times in the Psalms as well as a few other places in the Old Testament. The word means a stronghold, an inaccessible place. Interestingly, the Arabic word that is equivalent to this is the word Masadan. Those of you who are familiar with Palestine have heard of Masada, which is where the name Masada comes from, the Arabic Masadan. Masada is a very inaccessible place where in the time when the Roman army was subjecting uh, and subduing Israel, a few of the Jews were able to escape there to Masada. It is a high, inaccessible stronghold on the shore of the Dead Sea. And there they held out against the Roman general Titus and his mighty army for months and months and months until the Roman army could build a ramp and finally get inside Masada. But when they got inside, they found that all the Jews had committed suicide rather than be taken prisoner by the Roman army. Masada, fortress, stronghold, an inaccessible place. David says, the Lord is my Masada, my fortress. And then the other word is the word refuge. Refuge is used 41 times in the Psalms. It refers to a place of protection, a place of escape. David related well to both of these words. For example, Zion, which became the city of David, was originally a fortress of the Canaanites. It was David himself who conquered Zion and then made it eventually his capital city. You can find the record of that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David understood what a fortress was. He captured the fortress city of Zion, and it became then his fortress capital city. On the other hand, when you think of a refuge, you can't help but think of En Gedi, that area of greenness in the midst of the wilderness of Judea a place where there were tropical trees and plants, a stream and waterfalls in the midst of barrenness and brown. David spent a good deal of time at En Gedi because it was there he found refuge or protection from Saul when Saul sought his life. So David identified well with both of these terms, fortress and refuge. Perhaps the greatest significance, though, of the term refuge is found in the Old Testament cities of refuge. 
These are listed for us in Numbers 35, and the basic concept is explained there. Most of you undoubtedly are familiar with them, but let me just remind you what was involved. God established a system of law that was put into place before there was a central government. One of the primary purposes of that system, as well as central government, is the protection of human life. The basic thrust of the law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If a life was taken, then the one who was the murderer was to have his life forfeited. It was to be taken from him. But before there was central government, how was that to be established? How was capital punishment, if you want to use that term, to be carried out? Well, God's answer was the blood avenger. That is, the nearest relative of the person who was killed was to avenge the life of his relative. He was called the avenger of blood. It was his responsibility to take the life of the one who had killed his relative. Now, one who had killed someone, particularly if he had killed that person accidentally, uh, did not want that to be carried out, obviously. And so God established for a system of law when there was no central government, cities of refuge. There were six of these cities. Three of them were on the east side of the Jordan River, three of them on the west side. Their names on the west side were Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. Those are familiar names to us. The ones on the east side perhaps are less familiar. The one to the furthest north was Golan, where we get the name Golan Heights, Ramoth, and Bezer. These six cities were established by God as Levite cities and also as cities of refuge. Here's the way it worked. If a man killed another person, he had the privilege of fleeing to the nearest city of refuge. There he was to be protected by the elders of that city until a form of trial could be carried out. It's uncertain as to whether the trial was carried out in the city of refuge itself or whether it was carried out back at the site of the crime. But either way, the people, the elders of the city of refuge were responsible for protecting the accused killer until some sort of trial could be held. The avenger of blood could pursue the killer unto the gate of the city, but he could go no further, for that city was a refuge for the accused. If, as a result of the trial, it was found that the death was not accidental, but the man was, in fact, a murderer, this was not a manslaughter case, it was murder, then the elders of the city were to cast out the killer so that the avenger of blood could do his work and exact the justice of God upon him. On the other hand, if it was found that this man had killed the other person accidentally, so it was manslaughter, as we would call it, then the elders of the city were to care for this man. They were to provide for him as long as he needed to be there. The city of refuge became his home. If he left the city of refuge, the avenger of blood could find him and kill him. 
But as long as the man guilty of manslaughter stayed in the city of refuge, he was to be provided for there. There could be no price paid that would allow him to be released early. He had to stay there until the death of the high priest. Now, if that was six months, it was six months. If it was 50 years, it was 50 years. But he was to stay there, essentially a prisoner, but provided for, in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And then all of those who were in the city of refuge and uh, were being kept could be released and could go, and the avenger of blood could not exact the toll of the man's life. That was the way God provided for some of the system of justice in Israel before there was a central government. By the way, that system was used as well in other nations at that time, and God used it among his own people, established it as we have basically explained it tonight. So you see, the city of refuge became a place of provision because the man was to be cared for in that city. It was a place of petition because a trial was to be held to determine his guilt or innocence of murder. He could appeal to the elders of the city to protect him from the avenger of blood, the man who was there to carry out justice. It was also a place of protection for he could not be touched as long as he was in that city. That is why the cities of refuge are a wonderful picture of the salvation that we have in Christ. Because following us is the justice of God. To avenge justice upon us, we who are sinners, we have violated the laws of God, and God has said, the soul that sins, it shall die. But God has graciously made provision for us in his Son, Jesus Christ, so that we may flee to him and find in him refuge from the justice of God that we deserve. It's a wonderful story how he himself fulfilled that justice of God, isn't it? He fulfilled it on our behalf. He satisfied it. He became the propitiation for us. But because of his work, we may flee to him and find refuge from the justice of God. And so you see the idea, the concept of refuge is not just Old Testament. It is New Testament as well. Let's turn to one passage in Hebrews where we see it used. Hebrews chapter 6. After delivering a stern warning to go on to maturity... The writer of Hebrews underscores the security that is the true child of God that belongs to him. He says in verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having obtained, having patiently waited, He obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation 
is an end of every dispute. May I just say that that is the hope of the parent of every teenager, an end of every dispute. But here we have the spiritual concept that there is no disputing the security of the child of God. Why? Because God has not only promised, but he has secured the promise with his own oath. And it goes on to say in verse 17, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. You see, refuge is a concept for us too. What a wonderful thought that is, that we have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope that God graciously set before us. What hope is that, by the way? He speaks in chapter 7 of the better hope that we have in the new covenant. Well, I would suggest to you that the hope that he's talking about is the hope of the complete removal of our sins through the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There was no hope of that under the old covenant. It provided merely a covering for sin, an atonement as it were, an I.O.U. that had to be paid sometime. God's justice was not fully satisfied. It was only delayed. There was an atonement, a covering. That was the hope of the Jews. And it provided salvation for them, but it was, it was not the best hope. God has provided that for us in Christ. It is the hope that not only are our sins covered, no, no, they are removed entirely. They are forgiven. They are expunged from the record because of the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have fled for refuge to that hope that God has set before us. And he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I would suggest to you that all that the city of refuge was and more, Jesus is to us. He is to us a place of protection. Protection from the justice of God upon our own sins. He protects us because he's already paid the price for our sins. He is our place of petition. He is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is there forever to intercede before God on our behalf. So that when there is one who comes to accuse us, as Satan does, as the accuser of the brethren, we have a great high priest who stands before God and intercedes in our behalf. He is our place of petition. He is our mercy seat. And then he is also our place of provision. For we are cared for in this world, but beyond that, he has gone 
before us, behind the veil, into the very presence of God, as a forerunner. That means he has gone before us on our behalf. And as surely as he has gone there and is there, so one day we who have placed our hope in him, our faith in him, will one day be there too. He is our provision. He is our refuge, the Lord our refuge. Let me just bring this concept down to some practical ideas as we think of how the Lord provides refuge for us in our pilgrimage in the world. To do this, I'd like to go back to the book of the Psalms. And first to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. These familiar words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear no matter what happens. That last little phrase sort of uh, explains what the words mean in verses 2 and 3. He says, God is our refuge. He is a present help in the time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear no matter what happens. God, in the first place, is a refuge from worry for the child of God. Worry is perhaps the greatest thief of our joy and our peace in Jesus Christ, isn't it? For anxiety and peace cannot exist together. When you and I allow ourselves to become anxious about the trouble around when we allow ourselves to worry about our circumstances and our situation, then the peace of God flees away. On the other hand, when we enter into the truth that the Lord is our refuge, the peace of God that passes understanding fills our hearts, and anxiety cannot stand it. Anxiety then flees. You and I experience one or the other. The peace of God or worry. When we understand the Lord is our refuge, he becomes a refuge from worry. How do we enter into that refuge? What is the door that will allow us to enter into and enjoy the refuge from worry? The answer to that is faith. Isn't that basically what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4? Look at those verses. Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7. We need to look at them, basically, because I can't remember how to get started to quote them. Philippians chapter 4. Here we go. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What it will guard us? What will become the refuge for us? Well, the peace of God. How do we get into the refuge? By doing what he says. By prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Lifting our request to God. Letting him know what our concern is. How wonderful that God has opened the way so we can do that. I don't know what the thing is in your life that's creating the temptation to worry tonight. I know for some of you. Some of you shared them on the prayer request forms and 
Some of us prayed for them earlier this evening. I understand why you're anxious or tempted to be anxious. Others of you have things locked up in your heart and those things are creating worry inside. Hey, tonight do what God tells us to do. Dare to release those things to God by petition. Dare to let go of them by offering them up to God along with thanksgiving. And when you do that, God will be to you a very present help in trouble. His peace will guard your heart and mind. He will become a refuge for you and will guard you against worry. You say, oh, but the temptation is still there to worry. Yes, it is. I wish it were possible to entirely eliminate the possibility of worry. We can't do that in this world. The temptation will still be there, but let's not succumb to it. But rather enjoy the refuge that God gives us from worry. Faith is the door that gets us into that refuge. And then just turn over a page or two to Psalm 48 as we see that the Lord is not only a refuge from worry, He is a refuge from warfare. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. Now the writer here is talking about Zion. Remember before we said Zion was a stronghold, a fortress city. But he is saying that it's not Zion itself, it's God who is now in Zion, who is the fortress, the stronghold. He says, For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. So he expresses what happened when the kings passed by. Which situation was this? Well, we don't really know. Maybe it was the Assyrians as they came uh, toward Jerusalem. And then God, in a marvelous way, destroyed their army and delivered his people. We don't know the exact situation, but the psalmist draws upon the fact that when the kings assembled themselves together, <clears throat> they looked and saw Zion and the God of Zion there. And they trembled and were afraid and fled in panic. We can see the same idea back in Psalm 46 again in verse 6, where the psalmist says, The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, our stronghold, our refuge. I would like to apply this to the reality that you and I face of spiritual warfare. For as most of us realize, we are involved in a struggle between good and evil, between light and darkness. We are involved in a warfare that is invisible. I think one of Donald Gray Barnhouse's books is called The Invisible War. If you've never seen that little paperback, it's not a little paperback. It's a paperback. You ought to, to, to buy it and read it. The Invisible War. He talks about spiritual warfare. There is spiritual warfare going on around us 
constantly. And uh, some of us realize it, some of us don't. If we don't realize it, we're at the disadvantage. We need to understand how serious the warfare is. But what is at stake may not be our souls if we're the children of God, but it is our life that is at stake, our effectiveness, our usefulness to Jesus Christ. For you see, Satan's end in spiritual warfare is to cause you to be ineffective as God's servant. It is to wreck your life and mine in such a way that we will not any longer be able to be used by God. Disqualified, set on the shelf. That's his goal. If we don't understand that, then we are greatly at a disadvantage and we're in trouble. Warfare rages around us. We need to understand that some of the circumstances we get into are not to be laid to the feet of the flesh and blood that we see and that we blame. But rather Satan is using that flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, right? The principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world are using those people or those circumstances to get to us. Well, God is our refuge. Though we are in the midst of warfare, we need not be terrified by it. We need to be armed. We need to be alert and vigilant. We need to stand against the enemy in this day of evil. But we need not be terrified by the enemy. Because God is our refuge in warfare. Now what is it that gets us the victory? What is it that enables us to experience the refuge, the protection of God in the midst of the attacks of Satan against us? Well, the, the secret, I think, is found in Psalm 57, verse 1. <clears throat> be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in thee, and in the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. He says, I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. What is the secret to knowing victory, to knowing the refuge in our warfare? It is going to the mercy seat to the shadow of his wings. The, the picture here is, of course, to that mercy seat on the top of the ark where those cherubim were stretched out on the ends with their wings overshadowing the ark, looking down upon that mercy seat. That's the picture in the psalmist's mind. He says, I will go to the mercy seat of God, and there I will wait until destruction passes by. I will cry out to God. When I'm under attack, when you're under attack, when we sense Satan on the offensive in our lives, how do we find refuge? The answer is going to the mercy seat of God. Going there and taking refuge in his wings and finding protection until destruction 
passes by. God is our refuge from worry. And God is our refuge from warfare. But in closing, let me suggest one other way in which he is our refuge. This is found in Psalm 71. Psalm 71 and, well, I'll begin in verse 5. For thou art my hope. O Lord God, thou art my confidence from my youth. By thee I have been sustained from my birth. Thou art he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of thee. I have become a marvel to many, for thou art my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with thy praise and with thy glory all day long. Be, uh, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. I want to suggest to you in closing tonight that God is a refuge from weakness. The psalmist here bases his claim that God is a refuge from weakness upon a lifetime of experience. He says, in my birth... You've sustained me. And in my youth, when I was young, you were my confidence. And then as he looks ahead to his old age, he knows that God will not cast him off, nor forsake him, but will be his strength. The psalmist says that God is a refuge for him in the time of weakness. Now we can apply that to any kind of weakness that you and I have. It may be physical weakness that we experience. Frustrating as it may be, God is a refuge. I never cease to be amazed at people like Johnny Erickson. To hear her share as she does on her radio broadcast with such confidence in God such faith in God's sovereignty, God's goodness, and yet being quadriplegic. Weakness physically is her daily experience, and yet how God has become a refuge for her. She does not cry out and complain against God, but she finds God to be a refuge, a protection. God is her provision in the time, the experience of her, her weakness. And then emotional weakness. Times when we just feel drained, when we don't have any more response to give, God can be a refuge. Mental fatigue, that's where a lot of us are tonight, God's a refuge. What about spiritual vulnerability? God's a refuge. When you and I are weak, the Lord is our refuge. The fact is that we cannot look to ourselves or to others to provide the refuge we need. Whether it be refuge from the wrath of God or refuge from worry, some people put their trust in others 
And they don't worry because of what others can do, but the fact is that others can't always do what's necessary, and sometimes others forget or others fail. We can't look to others as a refuge from worry. God's the only refuge. A refuge from warfare? Only God. He is our refuge in weakness? Only the Lord, not others. Others may encourage us, yes, but God's our refuge. One final text in Psalm 142. At a time in my life when I was probably at the lowest I've ever been. Before we moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul. A time of ministry that was extremely difficult. Psalm 142 became for me bread that my soul fed on. Maybe tonight if you are pressed with despair, if you feel weak, if you feel there's no strength left, look at this. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I declare my trouble before Him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, thou didst know my path. Are you overwhelmed tonight by what you're passing through? Isn't it great to know when our spirit is overwhelmed, God knows our path? He hasn't left us. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. To paraphrase something that M.R.D. Hahn said a number of years ago, I look to others and I'm disillusioned. I look to myself, and I'm disgusted. I look to the Lord, and I'm delivered. I'm talking to some people tonight who need to know, to enter into, that is, the truth that the Lord is your refuge. Let him be that for you tonight. Let's pray. If that's you, if you are tonight overwhelmed, overwhelmed with worry, overwhelmed with warfare, overwhelmed with weakness, will you say to the Lord, Thou art my refuge. He cares, my friend. Others may fail you, even if they don't want to. You can't trust your own self, but you can trust Him. Tell Him so right now. Lord, encourage us, each one of us, I pray, with this truth. And may our hearts respond to the refuge you provide with great joy, deep 
appreciation and warm devotion. Thank you that you are to us our protection, our petition, our provision, that you are all that we need. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord bless you. May you live in the refuge that is the Lord this week. We're dismissed.